Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have a great guest, uh, Christian Kalin. We've had him before, along with Chris Clausen. They're part of LEO, L-E-I-I-O. The name may be changing uh, very soon. Uh, The website is LeoWellness.com. And Christian is a mycologist, so he studies mushrooms, fungi, with over 20 years of propagation, cultivation, and processing experience. Uh, he's got a lot of knowledge in this area, so I wanted to ask him and go deep into mushrooms. So, Christian, thanks for coming. Thank you, Rich. It's good to be back. Appreciate it. Tell me a little bit about why you got into mushrooms, and you know, I guess then we'll get into some of the tidbits that you've learned over the past 20 plus years. Yeah, from that last episode that we did, just briefly explained how I had my own psychedelic journey on uh, psychedelic mushrooms back in the early 90s that really catapulted my interest to know more about mushrooms in general. Not everyone's response to those experiences, but for me, it was just I couldn't believe that an organism like this, like a a fungi, could actually give me this experience. So from there, I just started reading as much as I could, consuming everything fungus and mushroom, trying to just learn as much as I could over the last I would say 25 years, basically. So just experimenting with my own cultivation and then ended up reading Paul Stamets books and then going to his workshops on his farm and then ended up working with him on his farm for a few years before we started our own farm. So kind of you work with him directly. That's really cool. Yeah. For about three years, 2004 to 2007. What, uh, What kind of interesting stuff did you learn working with him? Lots of different, really cool things. The first year I was there, we actually hosted the International Medicinal Mushroom Conference in Port Townsend, Washington. And that was really amazing to just meet mycologists from around the world that had worked on, you know, going in submarines and doing research with mushrooms on the seafloor or um, the Iceman Otzi back in the early 90s that was found in the Swiss Alps. They did uh, a mycologist there 
actually did the sequencing of the mushrooms that were found on Otzi, the Iceman, and just uh, so many amazing people. There was uh, Gaston Guzman. He is uh, the the leader in psilocybin or psilocybin mushrooms in the world. He was from Mexico and came up for the conference. So it was just really amazing to meet all these top mycologists from around the world. So that was kind of the start of working there. And then, of course, being there with Paul, a well-known author around the world. He's kind of a a myco superstar, I guess you could say, a spokesperson for the industry. So um, it was just amazing altogether, just the learning experience of being there firsthand, working on a mushroom farm at that level, as well as, you know, being integrated into all the different things that Paul brought into the farm as well. It was a really amazing experience. Yeah, no, that's really cool. So how much of your attention and time and knowledge is on culinary mushrooms or mushrooms for nutrients or health versus, you know, the psychoactive ones? Yeah, I, that's primarily what I've done over the last 15 years uh, on growing mushrooms for food. So that's been our primary interest, uh, working with the farmers markets locally here in the Olympia Tacoma area, as well as uh, starting one of the first mushroom CSAs in the, in the country. CSA is a community supported agriculture where people can pre-purchase their there's summer delivery of produce straight from the farm. So you basically just work with your local farm that sets up a membership and then you get 18 to 20 weeks of fresh delivered produce basically straight from the farm. And we teamed up with a local CSA farm here that gave us that opportunity to get into 50 to 60 different locations from Portland to Seattle. And they delivered our mushrooms to all their CSA members. So that was pretty cool. So we've primarily just been concentrating on food. And then we got into some of the medicinal qualities. You know, most gourmet mushrooms are actually, they're all medicinal. They help us boost our immune system, fight cancers, regulate blood, blood sugar and cholesterol. So there's all kinds of really cool nutritional benefits of eating mushrooms. And then you can also process those raw or dehydrated mushrooms into secondary products like vitamin supplements and such that people might not get the chance to eat fresh mushrooms all the time. So they can supplement them in their nutritional supplements daily or weekly or whatever. So that's kind of the shift that we've gone from food into medicine now. And now that things are opening up in the psychedelic realm, uh, we want to uh, move into that as well as things get legalized and open up more. So, Have you had times in your life or known people that like eat mushrooms every day and they eat fresh ones? And if so, like if you've done this or if you know someone that has, like what did they experience having that much of them? that often that fresh yeah i think it just you know you don't want to eat too many every day i you know anything in balance basically but there's so many different varieties out there that's what we would teach at the farmer's markets with people that would kind of gawk at us as they passed our stand they you know a lot of people in our country it hasn't been accepted over the years you know culturally it's kind of been passed down from grandparent to kid to grandkids in Europe, Eastern Europe, Russia, there's, you know, a lot of different countries that are, it's, it's been part of their upbringing and celebrated, but here in the West or in, in the U.S. at least, there's almost a phobia around fungus and mushrooms. So it's taken a bit of educating people that, you know, or maybe the people have had a bad experience eating mushrooms early on and they're, they're not willing to try new and different mushrooms. So there's just a lot of different amazing mushrooms with textures and flavors that are all variable and um, delicious. You know, there's most of the wild varieties that you can't cultivate. They're called mycorrhizal species. They have the relationships with the trees and the plants out in the forest. 
So we can't mimic that in cultivation. And they tend to be more expensive, like the, the morel mushrooms or the porcini mushrooms or the truffle mushrooms. Oh, uh, so there, are there some you just can't grow indoors or when you grow them indoors that they're radically different from out in the forest? Yeah, you you can cultivate their the fungus itself, but you can't manipulate them to fruit mushrooms or, you know, to basically, the, to break it down really quickly, kind of the, the life cycle of the mushroom is, they're they're either decaying or basically feasting off dead or decaying wood. That's one type of mushroom called a, a saprotrophic mushroom. And then there's other types that are mycorrhizal, myco meaning fungus, rhizal meaning root. And they're actually teaming together with the root structure. They're in symbiotic relationship with the roots of the plants and the trees. So like chanterelles, porcinis, the pine mushroom, truffles, there's all sorts of mycorrhizal varieties that you, you'll see them in a grocery store, but they're all wild harvested. They can't be cultivated. So, and then the the wood lovers or the saprotrophs um, that break down dead and decaying wood are those that we can actually cultivate and manipulate on sawdust or in manure food sources for the mushroom. So, does anyone set out? I don't know a large backyard sized plot of land with some trees and stuff on it, and can you? grow mushrooms outside like that, like seed the land, you know, like so you, uh, you throw some dead logs in certain areas, pile them up and water them periodically. Can you, can you have a mushroom farm outside essentially? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. Yeah, that's one of the easier ways to grow mushrooms actually is to inoculate logs and then pile those logs up in a shady spot where they're not going to get direct sunlight and dry out. And some people set up shade cloth or even a sprinkler system over the top of the, the piles of wood so that during those hot summer months, they can kind of regulate that heat and keep them somewhat maintained with moisture and humidity. But then once the logs, you know, you, you, you can buy plugs or sawdust from farms like myself and then drill holes into the logs and plug the, the holes with the sawdust or these little wooden dowels that have the fungus on it. So it's basically like a mushroom seed that you put into the log. And then after about a year of it growing through the log, you'll have that log producing mushrooms for up to five or 10 years after that. So it's kind of a fun way for, you know, you don't need a laboratory. You don't need a lot of high-tech equipment. You just buy these little spawn plugs from a local mushroom farm and then get some friends over, start drilling holes in logs and pounding these plugs in there and set them up in a nice shitty spot and they'll start growing mushrooms for you. So it's kind of the most basic way to cultivate mushrooms. Yeah, that's cool. You know, I, I, I don't know. I'm not a good mushroom grower. I don't know much. I've tried to get those kits where you grow oyster mushrooms. And one time nothing happened. Another time mold grew instead. What are some of the tricks in growing mushrooms to make sure they grow right and things don't get spoiled? And how do you know you're doing it right? Yeah, that's a good question. There's three main parameters. There's temperature, 
a lot of these varieties like to be right around 65 to 75 degrees. And then there's airflow. So they produce CO2 naturally, just like we do. They need oxygen to survive. So we need to bring in fresh air so that they're not suffocating, basically. But then uh, as you bring in fresh air, that air might be too hot or too cold. So you have to regulate the temperature at the same time. And then there's humidity. So they like at least 80% humidity. So those three variables are kind of, they can be difficult to regulate in tandem, but it's possible. And for the the average grower just buying a kit at home, it's best to try to set up a little make make makeshift grow space, like a grow room out of a Tupperware or maybe a big bag, something that will trap humidity around that little bag, the the kit, and then bringing in a little bit of fresh air as you're trapping the humidity, whether it's poking holes in the bag that's around the the kit, or maybe spraying misted water in the container, the Tupperware, the aquarium, whatever you're using to cover it as the makeshift grow space. So, What factors would, would encourage mold growth versus mushroom growth? Like what's important to look for in a system like that? Yeah, usually the, the little kits you buy are ready to go. They're fully colonized, which the fungus is, you know, grown through the whole block. So they're usually anti-mold resistant you know they're mold resistant at that point but it's the airflow a lot of times if they're too stagnant they're not getting a lot of fresh oxygen that can bring in the green mold and and some of the different molds that take over which are just topical you can um, experiment on shaving off a little bit of that mold if it's not just everywhere over the block and then trying to get rid of that and salvaging the rest of your block or if you're in an area where you can just put the block outside actually maybe you live in more of a temperate place where you know the temperature is around 70 degrees and you have a little bit of humidity you can actually get away with having those kits feeding outside instead of in your home how hard is it to grow mushrooms for the average person i mean for you again you're more of an expert but in general like are they hard to grow or are they pretty easy once you figure them out if you like this podcast please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. They're actually fairly easy. They're Once you get them going, they really compound. Like you can grow a lot of mushrooms from a small amount of material and they like agricultural waste and, and landscaping waste, you know, other food sources that we'd probably throw away. Um, a lot of times mushrooms can be environmentally you know, efficient and consuming those and making a food product from them. So um, sometimes too, like people just want them to grow too much. It's almost like, you know, when you're cooking on the barbecue or whatever, and you just keep bugging whatever you're cooking, you're turning it constantly. It just doesn't cook right. Mushrooms can kind of be that way too sometimes, like almost like if you ignore it a little bit from time to time, but still be there. um, A lot of times they'll just start growing for you. But I found that if you bother them too much, sometimes they don't. So there is the sterile aspect, too, that keeps people away. If you're starting them from scratch and not buying kits from other farms, that there's a whole another realm of possible contamination issues because of the sterility. We have to sterilize all the material before we put the culture, the fungus, on that food source because molds and bacteria grow within you know hours to days and we need at least five or six days for the fungus to grow. So what do you mean what do you mean sterilize? Like what what do you do? Yeah, um so wood source or well to start from scratch, you can take any mushroom out of the grocery store 
and either collect the spores off the the underside of the cap. There's gills, and that's where the spores are released. And you can put that cap gill side down on a piece of paper and let it sit for you know eight to twelve hours, and it'll drop its spores onto the paper. And that's the seed of the mushroom, basically, that you can start from. Or you can actually just take a little piece of the interior flesh of the mushroom and put that on a petri dish that has a special special food source on the petri dish. This is all done in a laboratory. And then that'll grow out from there. And then from the petri dish, once you get a really aggressive line of, of fungus, you put that into sterile grain. And grain meaning like rye grain, wheat grain, any kind of grain. Uh, corn some people use. I use millet. And then we sterilize that in water and then put our culture from the petri dish onto the grain. And then the grain goes into the sawdust and then the sawdust eventually fruits the mushrooms. So it's kind of a three-step process in the sterile environment so that no molds or bacteria can take over what we've just made available for the fungus. But how do mushrooms grow out in the woods when there's no sterilization? Yeah, they... Uh, we're manipulating this whole process. You can do things more low tech and not have the laboratory aspect of it. But when you're cultivating large amounts of mushrooms, you really want to start your mushroom seed in a sterile environment and give your, you know, cultivating on a mass amount. It's best to just run on sterile, but you can as a hobby grower cultivate quite a few mushrooms in a non-sterile environment outside quite similarly to what they do in the the natural world. So, yeah, you can do it both ways. It's just technically sterilizing it's quicker, and you can can compound your yields quicker that way Mm. through laboratory techniques. So, But, yeah, you can naturalize naturalize sterile sterile stuff outside and take a, a sterile bag of grain and put it onto wood chips and then... Um, that kind of naturalizes it outside and then put it in a place where it's shaded under a tree where where it doesn't get a lot of direct sunlight and try to nurture a little outdoor patch where you can start growing mushrooms outside as well but it just takes time to naturalize that sterile culture into a non-sterile environment well it sounds like the sterilization is probably the most critical thing that you can do in order to make sure you can grow the mushrooms right if you're not using a kit Exactly. Yeah. And, and using isopropyl alcohol, rubbing alcohol to clean your hands and clean the surface that you're working around, maybe buying a HEPA filter as well, where the HEPA filter will blow air out towards you. That's totally sterile. So you can open bags or open Petri dishes and do sterile work in front of the flow head. So there's little it's trade- that's, uh, it's that important. I mean, you have to be that careful in you order to keep care. things sterile. Yeah, at that level, yeah. You can get away with doing it in front of an oven or even you can culture out in the forest with Petri dishes if you have a little lighter, basically a butane lighter or using heat to cause a little sterile space wherever the the flame is. There's different ways that you can kind of get around doing sterile work, but in kind of a halfway sterile environment. I I always tell my um, students, like push the boundaries. You know, if you have if you have something that you think might work, try it. See what happens. Um, takes time, you know, to and experimentation to really push those boundaries, and something good might come of those experimentations that we didn't know before. So, have you ever tried um, putting mushrooms together in different combinations? Does that do anything? Can they grow together? They usually outcompete each other. The 
like oysters are super aggressive. If you put those with any other mushrooms, most of the time the oyster grows in like five to seven days compared to like 30 days that shiitake takes. So, you know, they, most of the time they would outcompete, but it could be a fun mushroom kit to try, you know, like it's kind of like branching apples or, you know, grafting different apple varieties on one tree. Not a lot of people do it because they would outcompete each other on the mushroom level. Are there any mushrooms that uh, there's a prize? Like if you can grow this thing, no one's been able to grow it. But if you can, you win a prize. Maybe if we did put more prizes out there, there'd be more people doing it, trying. But um, a lot of the more expensive mushrooms, like morel mushrooms over the last 30 years, they've been putting a lot of money in and technology to try to cultivate the morel mushroom, which is more of an opportunistic mushroom. It's not necessarily a mycorrhizal, but it does have a relationship with trees. So they're they're kind of goofy. They're they're difficult, but they are possible. Like chanterelle mushrooms that are really popular here in the Northwest. A lot of people try to take their old chanterelles that they didn't want to eat and put that in a five-gallon bucket and make a, a slurry with water and let it ferment for a little while and then pour that around the trees to try to enhance the growth of chanterelles in their yard. But typically nature knows best and it just takes time for those trees to mature for the root systems to really flourish and, and give way for the mushrooms to grow. So. Does anyone ever grow slime molds or eat them? Or are there any other type of fungi or other you know, creatures that you've, you've worked on? There are. Are there any, are there any molds that anyone eats or does no one do that? Is well, that pushing it too far? No, the, you know, we use fungi molds or fungi as well. And they, you know, you think about all the foods that we use like cheeses and beer, you know, there's different uh, fungi that are used in organ transplant, like uh, so uh, anti-rejection medication. You think about early, you know, penicillin and antibiotics. I believe uh, insulin as well is derived from the fungi. So there's lots of different things that um, can be enhanced through molds. And there's actually a mushroom called the lobster mushroom here in the Pacific Northwest that is parasitized by a mold. It, it starts out as a white mushroom, uh, arushula variety, and then it's parasitized and grows into this bright red mushroom. And it's pretty amazing. It's, it, it goes from a mushroom that no one desires in the culinary realm to a mold that makes it 17 to $25 a pound. So it enhances it, actually. Yeah, there's fungi out there that are, that are grown like the corn, the meat, the meatless Foods that are popping up now, like corn, Q-U-O-R-N, I think is the company's name. They actually grow mycelium fungus in vats, like brewing beer, basically. And then they dehydrate that mass. It's not an actual mushroom, but it's a fungi. And then um, put that into their products for, you know, 30 to 40% protein, most mushrooms are. So it's a, a nice alternative to meat with high protein. So, yeah, there's a lot of amazing products that are coming out that, aren't really mushrooms, but they are fungus. You know, there's a difference between mushrooms and fungus that are, or mycelium, basically. Like the the fruit body or the mushroom is the last produ- reproductive cycle of the mycelium. And the mycelium is usually what we don't see in the ground. So you can use both the mycelium and the fruit body for all kinds of different things. Yeah, I asked you this before. Um, have you gone through a period where you were eating just mushrooms like every day? or all the time, you know, natural, fresh ones? And if so, like, did you feel any major difference? Yeah, I, you know, I think lion's mane, cordyceps are two varieties that I feel really different on cordyceps, especially. 
Cordyceps is a traditionally it's grown in the wild on caterpillar caterpillar larvae in Tibet that we can actually cultivate now. Um, there's varieties here in the U.S. called militaris, and then you can also grow the mycelium and use that in your supplements. And it helps boost. Uh, it basically helps oxygenate your blood and give you stamina. And so people that are runners or maybe athletic, they'll definitely feel a difference when they're using cordyceps as well as um, just, I I wasn't much of a morning person and they've really helped me over the years just have more energy in the morning without needing caffeine. I love my coffee. Don't get me wrong, but cordyceps is one of those mushrooms that you can really feel the difference. And of course the psychedelic mushrooms as well. There's no, you know, there's no denying that those effects are being Uh, taking place but some of the nutritional qualities of other fresh mushrooms it's more of a slow medicine i like to say where you might not feel it right off the bat but over weeks of taking it or eating the mushrooms you you Mm -hmm. might start to feel those beneficial effects oh have you like tried to make eat like four or five or ten different kinds of mushrooms on a regular basis to see if it could really impact how you feel have you ever jumped into this and and tried to do something like that not for research purposes, maybe accidentally, just because I love mushrooms. And um, you would think because I, I've lived on a mushroom farm for better than a decade now that I'd just be eating mushrooms constantly. But yeah. like anything I'm else, I, I, try to, yeah, I take my balance here and there. And seasonally, too, you know, when they're on, then you tend to eat more. And when we, and we've got a lot of dried mushrooms, so we can always fall back on that where you can de- dehydrate the mushrooms for later and rehydrate them but i you know i love medleys of mushrooms like using five different mushrooms in one dish is is really tasty but for me i make medicinal tinctures that i can use as supplements too so if i feel like i'm not getting enough in my food source that i can supplement with those tinctures oh really what kind of conditions have you uh used them on and what have you noticed I I stack them like recently just for COVID I put three different antiviral mushrooms together in one tincture just to kind of help protect me from COVID and the flu over the years I've been taking it for like 15 years now when my kids would come home sick I would take it and it it really shields you I feel and helps boost your immune system to ward off all the flus and colds those three that I put in the tincture agaricon is one turkey tail and reishi so all three of those are antiviral mushrooms as well as boosting your immune system and cancer fighters as well in the world of psychedelic mushrooms how many you know i guess people have heard of psilocybin but does that represent a whole family or does that represent you know one or two kinds of mushrooms and you know how many mushrooms species appear to be have psychedelic properties yeah, that's a good question. Uh, Psilocybe is the genus of mushrooms, kind of like a family of mushrooms, but it's the genus. There are other genuses of mushrooms that have psilocybin or psilocybin tryptamine qualities to them. So it's not exclusive for just the psilocybe genus. But um, generally, when you hear about psilocybin mushrooms, they're psilocybe genus mushrooms. And you know, the more work we're doing on the genome or, or now that this is becoming a more tolerated and accepted thing, that there's going to be a lot more research and people sequencing these varieties so that we'll be able to know exactly what's in them. There's a lot of different tryptamines and analogs of psilocybin that are in other mushrooms. So mm-hmm. it's not just exclusive for uh, psilocybin. 
And I would say, you know, close to, I think, around 200 mushrooms or more that we know are psychoactive. Oh, wow. That many. Jeez. Do you know anyone that's made it their goal to try every single one? Maybe my goal. I I like experimenting a little bit with that. But no, I'm sure there are those that want to. And there's a whole other branch of mushrooms like the Amanita mushroom that's actually legal. And they're technically have always been referred to as poisonous. They're the red with yeah. the white spots. I thought like Amanita muscaria was like the death mushroom or something. They have the death cap and the destroying angel, two different varieties within that genus. Amanita is the genus. And then there's a few really amazing edible varieties as well, culinary mushrooms from that same genus. So they can be potent in both death and in uh, nutritional or psychedelic components for sure. But um, yeah. I can't. I'm really interested to know more about the Amanita too. I've always been super intrigued by it. And um, the the brown, the pantherina and the muscaria both hold a lot of folklore, a lot of history um, through, you know, millennia basically of usage. And this is kind of where alchemy and religion stem from through shamanism of this mushroom. So there's a lot of amazing stuff that will still be known from the Amanita as well. Yeah, I don't know if it was Paul Stamets or someone had the stoned ape hypothesis. I guess that uh, perhaps that's how religion began. Is uh, you know, one of our ancestors, where some of them would eat these mushrooms and have these these godlike you know, the experiences where they see God. Yeah, uh, Terence McKenna, I believe, was the one that was um, in Food of the Gods, kind of postulating that this potentially could have happened once. Some of those um, forest-dwelling animals came out into the savanna and started seeing manure-based mushrooms, psychedelic mushrooms, and maybe this was the myelination in the brain that actually helped us get to the next level of um, awareness. Potentially, you know, it was a, a definite possibility in my mind. Yeah, that's interesting. So what, what are the next frontiers in mycology that you're working on or you're thinking about? Oh, the new frontiers? I would say combining... Um, functional mushroom medicine that we're using today, lion's mane, reishi, cordyceps, all these amazing medicinal mushrooms, and then also integrating those into the psychedelic experience, learning more about how we can basically continue building new stem cells in our brain. If we eat healthy foods, if we exercise a little bit, if we have good thoughts, all of this um, is being proven that we're our brain function is healthy and we're producing new uh, brain cells. Um, Instead of thinking that this is degrading the brain cells, this is actually helping relieve inflammation and causing new cell growth. So I'm really excited about this as far as like Alzheimer's and dementia. I've got friends that have either passed because of those or are still dealing with it. And I see a lot of amazing things in the future um, with this medicine and opening up all kinds of pathways for other things. Yeah, that's excellent. So Christian, where can people find out more? Like, you know, they can get a kit off of Amazon and hopefully do better than I did, you know, to grow oyster mushrooms. Um, what other recommendations do you have for people to learn more about you and Leo and mushrooms in general? Oh, that's a good question. We're in this process of launching the company public in the fall. And so we've been working with this branding company and, we're almost ready to launch the name, but you can find what we're doing at leo.com. And then we'll, we'll have a, we'll forward everything from that main website to our new website coming out, but it's leio.com. 
You can find me on the interwebs, on social media platforms under Christian Kalen. And I also, my farm over the years has been Provisions Mushroom Farm. And we're on social media with that as well. So yeah, uh, feel free to reach out. There's there's just so much information out there now. I don't want to hoard it all for ourselves, but there's amazing farms um, growing these kits for people and keep an eye on us for upcoming products that we're going to be working on for both um, medicinal to help boost your immune system and also stacking with the psychedelic compounds. So, okay. Well, very good. Well, Christian, thanks for coming back on the podcast. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.